Beloved, what, uh, what is in a name? What is in a title? What is in an office? In our culture, uh, titles and offices often kind of blur together. You can think in the corporate world, manager, director, vice president. You can move up the executive change to all the CXO, the CEO, CTO, COO, CFO, now CSO, CIO, information, security, executive, the big kahuna, and all the rest. You can think of the government, president, vice president, senator, governor, mayor, city councilman, councilwoman, the list goes on. In the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there were three offices ordained by God for the people of God in the nation of Israel, prophet, king, and priest. The prophet brought God's truth to the people. The king brought God's throne to the people. The priest brought man's transgression to God. The prophet, in a sense, was a steward of the truth of God. The king was a steward of the rule of God. The prophet and the king both, in a sense, represented God before man. The priest represented, in a very real sense, man before God. Now, in Hebrews, now, in the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, these were three separate offices. In the book of Hebrews, at the very beginning, the author introduces us to the Son of God, the person, the man, the God-man, that is the center, of course, of the epistle. At the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he introduces him as the final word of God, as prophet. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then at the end of verse 3, he also brings Christ to us by virtue of his office of priest and king. When he had made purification of sins, that's priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that is king. Beloved, in Hebrews, Jesus is the prophet who speaks finally, the king who rules triumphantly, and the priest who saves vicariously. Also, As we look at Hebrews, a central theme of Hebrews, the author's heart and intent is to show Christ's absolute sufficiency and absolute supremacy and superiority over uh, the prophets in the first few verses we read. And then over the angels from where we left off all the way through the end of chapter 2. And then in chapters 3 and 4, the author brings out that Jesus is infinitely superior even to Moses and to Joshua. Even in the context of the eternal Sabbath rest that was part of God's original design and plan for man. A Moses, as great as he was, wasn't evil, even able to enter into the promised land because of a sin he committed. Joshua, who was able to lead the people into the land of promise, didn't truly ultimately realize the Sabbath rest that God had intended for the nation. And Christ is superior over them. 
But we find ourselves now in a long section that began in chapter 4, verse 14, where the author is bringing out the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Jesus over Aaron, over Levi. That the new covenant priesthood of Jesus, with Jesus as the perfect high priest, is infinitely superior to the old covenant priesthoods of Levi and Aaron, although they were ordained by God. And so we find ourselves in Hebrews 7 at the nerve center of Hebrews. And what's amazing is what the author does all the way back in chapter 5, verse 6. He brings about and opens up this introduction of a man that stepped out of the mist of the past. A man named Melchizedek. This man of mystery who appeared in a sense, as if from nowhere, in three verses in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek appears out of the blue, and after three verses, verses 18 through 20, Genesis 14, he disappears back into the blue, so to speak. And from that point, he disappeared from the pages of a thousand years of history. It wasn't until a thousand years after this epic meeting between Melchizedek and Abraham that King David picked up the theme and in one verse and one psalm talks about and briefly mentions Melchizedek. And then again he disappears from the pages of history for a thousand years until the author of Hebrews picks up the topic in chapter 5, 6 and going forward. Beloved, Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10 is a divine exposition of Genesis 14. It's a unique treat that I'm blessed with last week and this week to, in a sense, do an exposition of a divine exposition of the author of Hebrews, divinely inspired, superintended exposition of Genesis chapter 14. And the situation was Moses, excuse me, uh, Abraham, who was the receiver of God's blessing in Genesis 12, who was the receiver of God's promised Abraham to whom God told again back in Genesis 12 that through him the rest of the nations would be blessed Abraham meets a Canaanite a believing Canaanite in the land a real man who was worshiping the true God in the land God promised to Abraham before Abraham had even arrived there let us read verses 1 and 2 which we looked at last week to set the stage here Hebrews 7 1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So, Four times in two verses, the author tells us that he was, this man Melchizedek was a king. The emphasis of his treatment in these first ten verses is the man Melchizedek. He was king. But then also we read he was, as we just read verse 1, a priest of God most high. So he was king and priest. In essence, what we're doing here is The author is telling the audience, God is telling you and me, come meet priest king Melchizedek. And the focus from verse 3 and 4, which is our text this morning, is Melchizedek as priest, his priesthood. Now, 
When we think of the word priest, a priest is an interceder, an interlocutor, a mediator, standing between man and God and interceding between man and God. As priest of the Most High God, we saw in verses 1 and 2, and the author will expand upon more in our text this morning, verses 3 through 10, that as priest of God Most High, he both receives and he gives. He receives a tithe from Abraham, and he gives blessings to Abraham. And so he is his, we could say, the priesthood of Melchizedek is mediatorial, as is the case for all priests. But also what we saw last week and what we would pick up from this passage is this reference to God Most High, El Elyon, is namely that Melchizedek priesthood is also universal. It's not like the confined national priesthood of Levi and Aaron that God had put in place for the nation of Israel. Because he was priest of Most High God. He has this name, God has this name assigned to him, which is a name that is vaster and more comprehensive than even the beautiful covenant name of Yahweh that God had given to the nation of Israel. So Melchizedek's priesthood, beloved, is for all the peoples. It is a universal priesthood, comprehensive and far greater than the national priesthood of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. And that brings us to the text this morning. Beloved, listen as I read verses 3 through 10 in Hebrews chapter 7. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men, dying men, receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So, Again, we see from the first two verses, Melchizedek priesthood is mediatorial. It is universal, which the second one separates it from other priesthood. And what we'll see here in the next, seven, excuse me, next eight verses are three superior qualities, three more superior qualities to Melchizedek priesthood. Namely, it is singular, eternal, and cardinal. His priesthood is singular, eternal and cardinal. And all of this, beloved, in this long section of the high priesthood in this nerve center of Hebrews of the high priesthood of Jesus is building up to the epic application the author gives in chapter 10, verse 19, where I'm going to bring here and make it personal to you, beloved, the intent, God's plan and purpose for this passage, for this message for us, for you, is that you would have confidence to enter the holy place, not confidence in yourself, but confidence 
in the once for all sacrifice and interceding priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ even now by the blood of Jesus through a new living way which he inaugurated for you by going through the veil himself. And since you have this great high priest over you right now, draw near now, the author says, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Beloved, come meet priest king Jesus, excuse me, priest king Melchizedek, getting back to what we have here in our passage. And so the first superior quality of the priesthood of Melchizedek, at the beginning of verse 3, it is singular. Melchizedek's priesthood is singularly unique. And what the author brings out here is that the worth of Melchizedek and his priesthood is not derived from his historical genealogy, but from his personal dignity. And what's fascinating here is we see that what the author does here is he brings out that some silences of Scripture are pregnant with meaning. Now, if you'll be one of the breast, excuse me, one of the blessed uh, men or women that will be taking part of Pastor David's how to study and how to teach the Bible, one of the things he will likely bring out is something called eisegesis. So what we have in Scripture is we want to do an exegesis. We want to extract out from the pages of Scripture, from the words of God, the rich, deep meaning, to understand them and apply them to our lives. One of the things that I would imagine David will warn against is we don't want to get into eisegesis. We don't want to read into the text. We don't want to uh, unduly inform our understanding of Scripture based on our presuppositions. We don't want to read into the white spaces Having said that, this author of Hebrews, of this sermonic epistle, as he was borne along by the Holy Spirit, as he was superintended by God, does, as we transition from verse 2 to verse 3, bring out as much and attach as much significance to what is not said in Genesis 14 as to what is said. That's why I look at verse 3 here, Hebrews 7. He begins, without father, without mother, without genealogy. A pator, a mator, a genealogetos. Three words that appear only in the New Testament here. Without mother, without father, without genealogy. He is, Melchizedek is a no father, no mother, no genealogy man. Without background, without heritage. And to understand the magnitude and the significance, again, remember, this is called the book of Hebrews because he's writing to a congregation of Jewish believers. And to a Jewish man or woman, to an Israelite, the priesthood was, as ordained by God, all about nationality and all about genealogy. For example, in the time of the prophet Ezra, there were people that were coming and they were coming up to the temple and saying, hey, we're, I'm of, we are from the Levitical priesthood, I'm here to serve. And the response back to them was, show me your birth certificate. Ezra, speaking in the vernacular, Ezra 2, verse 62, you'll read these words. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they couldn't be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So, beloved, the point was, even as ordained by God, the only man that could serve as priest had to be from the line of Levi, had to be from the line of Aaron, and they had to be able to prove it with a written record. 
But now, when we look at this author of Hebrews, who is writing about an occasion that took place some 600 years, even before putting into place Levi and the Aaronic priesthood, we have Abraham, the father of all who believe, and the father, to be sure, of the nation of Israel, meets this Canaanite, this Gentile, who's not part of the line of Father Abraham, this man who comes out of nowhere. He's a nowhere man, a no-credential man. It says also, for example, verse 8, and what we'll do is we'll go through here. The author, in a very typical uh, Hebrew oriental fashion, has a real kind of circular back and forth of bringing these arguments out. It might be a little different from our western occidental mind, but that's what we'll do as we go through this. In verse 8, you see that he says, he describes Melchizedek as the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, them being the sons of Levi back in verse 5. So as we think of this author's exposition, his sermon of what took place in Genesis 14, this is in Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book of Toledoth, the book of generations, the ten Toledoth, the ten genealogies that provide a framework from the entire book. And in that book of beginning, that book of Toledoth, the book of generations, Melchizedek is the only man, the only person who is a true worshiper of the true God whose ancestry and descendants are given, are not given. And the author's point here is that Melchizedek was not a priest because his father was a priest and his grandfather was a priest and he didn't have successors. Therefore, his point is the priesthood of Melchizedek is singularly unique. It is divinely ordained by God, by El Elyon, God Most High. And on a side, but certainly related note, again, verses 1 through 10 is about the man Melchizedek. Verse 11 and forward, the author will take the foundation of what he's built about the man Melchizedek and apply it even more so to the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But understand this, when it comes to priestly lineage under the old covenant, Jesus had no credentials to be a priest himself, to be an Aaronic or a Levitical priest because he did not come from the line of Levi. He came from the line of Judah. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is pronouncing the prophecies and the blessings on all his sons, it's Genesis 49, verse 10, that God, through Jacob, tells Judah that the kingship would come through him. Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob said to Judah, the scepter won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, that should be an uppercase H, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So even Jesus himself, the man Jesus, didn't have the right credentials from a lineage historical standpoint. So that is the superior quality of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is singularly unique. Secondly, this morning, it is eternally undying. It is singularly unique and eternally undying. The priesthood of Melchizedek, beloved, was universal not national. It was singular, not general, and it was eternal. It is eternal, not temporal. And what the author brings out here in the middle of verse 3 is there is a priest who predates, pre-exists, and outlives 
the entire Levitical priesthood. That's why, look at the middle of verse 3, he says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, to the original Jewish congregation, this would rock their boat. I mean, they would say, how can you have a priesthood? They would ponder, they would wonder, how can you have a priesthood with no beginning and no end? Uh, in the nation, priesthood began at age 29, and it lasted until you were 50, or begin at 25 if you wanted to count kind of a four-year internship, so to speak. But, but to have no beginning and no end, what does that mean? Look at what the author says. He says, he continues, but, watch this, made like the Son of God. Uh, the Greek word translated made like, this is the only appearance of this word also in the New Testament. It means a copy. What he's saying here, and this even comes out a little bit in our English, is Melchizedek is a simile. You may remember a metaphor in English grammar is a direct substitution. A simile is the word like or as. So Melchizedek is a simile. He's a facsimile. He's the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Uh, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So in verses 1 through 10, the main point and argument of the author is Melchizedek. But notice, the argument that he brings out here is not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. His argument here, he has the appropriate referent, is that Melchizedek is like, made like Jesus, like the Son of God. And so his point is that Melchizedek, in all his greatness, and as we continue through the passage, we'll see his greatness expanded and extolled even more. In all his greatness, he is merely here to point to the one who is far greater, infinitely greater. He is a type of Christ. And a quick word on that. When we think of a type in the Bible, if, and we can put it this way, some people, when you hear the word typology, you might bristle a little bit. Some people might get excited, depending on the perspective. When God describes a person or a thing in Scripture as a type, then we can say that is a type of Christ. If God doesn't, then we ought not. We can think of examples. We can think of Numbers 12, excuse me, Numbers 21, of the bronze serpent that was lifted up so that when the people of the nation of Israel had these afflictions, if they looked on the bronze serpent that was lifted up on a tree, they would be healed of their physical diseases. And Jesus, in essence, said that that was a type of himself when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, then we can look to Christ and to, we can live and be healed of our spiritual diseases. That is a type. The bronze servant was a type. Jesus is the antitype. We can think of Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. That is a type of the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the nation of Israel. No, what John the, Bapt John the baptizer, the forerunner, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, of both Jews and Gentiles, of Israel and the nation. So the Passover lamb was a type. It was a shadow. It was a foretaste of the antitype of the substance of the reality of Christ. So, beloved, Melchizedek is a shadow. The Son of God is the substance. And what the author says is that he was made like the Son of God. And just a quick point on, on this. Uh, I can't remember whether or not I mentioned this last time, but when people have approached Melchizedek historically, there's been two primary thinking. One is the correct, clear understanding that Melchizedek was a man who was born, he lived, and he died, he had parents. They're just not recorded here. Another interpretation that is certainly 
falls within orthodox thinking, but it's wrong, is that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. And beloved, when you look at Genesis 14, there's nothing in those original three verses at all that would point towards this being a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. And in fact, when you look at the examples in the Old Testament, the theological term, it's called a theophany, or a Christophany, which again is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. Uh, for example, in Genesis 18, a pre-incarnate appearance of God himself and two angels, so three men, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son, and two angels came and met Abraham. Or when you look at the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. The point here is when we compare Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20 with all the true theophany appearances in the Old Testament, there's no commonality. Here in Hebrews 7, this whole section, which began chapter 4, 14, all through here, is all about priestly qualification. It's not about miraculous birth. And his point here is that this is a priesthood that has no beginning and no end. And even as I mentioned before, in the book of Genesis, with all the genealogies, we can think of, for example, Genesis chapter 5 which has one of the Toledoth, one of the genealogies that are given, and from Adam to Noah. And when you read through Genesis 5, it's like walking through a cemetery. Eight times you see there, and he died, and he died, and he died eight times. Even when you come to the glorious exception of Enoch, we are told specifically that he was not, for God took him. So the point here is that Melchizedek is something singularly unique. He is eternal, and that is the focus of what the author is bringing here. And by the way, for what it's worth, not one pastor or one commentary that I read in my study here pointed towards this being a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So be that as it may, that's where we are at. So what we see as we continue is he abides at the end of verse 3, back to the main point. He abides a priest perpetually. Perpetually. This is a unique word, perpetually, stretched out. This would describe, for example, a cloth or a rope that is stretched to its full limit. Uh, continuous, uninterrupted. This is another word that is used exclusively by the author of Hebrews. He uses it here. He uses it in chapter 10, verse 1, where it's translated continually. And then same chapter, verses 12 and 14, chapter 10, it's translated for all time. And I think what's taking place here is the author uses this unique word, which is very similar to the word eternal or eternally. He uses this here because he's talking about the man Melchizedek, who was a real man, but in a very real, internally important sense, continues on forever. He used, for example, in chapter 5, verse 6, where we were first introduced to Melchizedek, the author used the normal word eternal when he said that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So when the author first introduces us to Melchizedek after a thousand years of silence, he quotes from King David, Psalm 110, verse 4, where it's speaking of the son. 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek because chapter 5, 6 is referring to just Jesus and the Son of God, I think is why he uses the normal word eternal. But then in the beautiful artistry of the literary genius of the word of God that spans from the writing of Moses and generous Genesis all the way to King David, then a thousand years later to Hebrews, God through the author has him use this more unique, rarer word because he's talking both about the eternal nature of his priesthood but also the man Melchizedek. Look at verse 8. We see something similar. And in this case, mortal men, dying men, receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. So, Mortal men, dying men, the Levitical priesthood, they receive the tithes. But the one who lives on, Melchizedek, also receives them. And look at verses 22 and 23 of Hebrews chapter 7. Again, when we get verse 11 forward, the focus is on Jesus. And this comes out, verse 22. So much more, also Jesus, has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. Watch this because they were prevented by death from continuing. I mean, that's the problem. The Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, they keep on dying. But the one who continues on, Melchizedek, chapters 1 through 10, Christ, in verses 22 and 23, they have a permanent possession of that priesthood. It is an eternally undying priesthood is the point. And this means much to the original audience, and especially in terms of what they're being tempted towards. Now, if you've been here at Santan for a while, and I think I might have even mentioned this recently, it's like, I, I kind of like food. And I'll, I'll give a full confession of my shame here. If I'm going to a restaurant that, I'm go that I know I'm going to be going to, especially if I've never been there before or hadn't been there in a while, I'll do a little reconnaissance. And I'll go online and look at the menu and kind of map it out and kind of have a plan in place before I even get there. Now, Having said that, imagine if I got to the restaurant and I had whatever I picked out ahead of time or when I was there, and then they bring this marvelous meal before them. What if I were to say, you know, I'm really hungry. I, I, you know, I need to refuel from this, that, or the other thing. And I said, you know, that's great, but can you just bring me back the menu? I just think I want to look at that. Uh, or imagine kind of extending a similar example. What if you had a man dying or a woman dying of starvation, and they come to a restaurant, and they, oh, here's some food, and it's like, no, thank you. I think I just want to look at the pictures on the menu. Beloved, the point here is that is the temptation of the riddle, original audience. Their dilemma was they were facing persecution and opposition. They were in the deadly danger of drift, of leaving the substance of the new covenant priesthood and sacrifice of Christ and going back to the shadow of the old covenant Levitical priesthood. And so the author is saying, why would you do that? Don't go from the new back to the old. I mean, the original audience is saying, what, what are we really doing here? We don't have an altar. We don't have a sacrificial system. We don't have robes. We're not swinging incense. We don't have bells and whistles. But the author wants them to understand what you have is infinitely greater, is singularly unique, and it is eternally undying. So, beloved, the author is telling this group of battered, beaten-down Jewish believers, God is telling you and me 
Uh, you know, here in the, the cushy confines of Gilbert, Arizona, in the United States of America, uh, we don't have much. <laughs> we certainly don't have any persecution. I mean, things are getting worse. I get all this. But when we are tempted to go back to whatever our former life was, the wiles from the past, as wonderful in the case of the Jewish believers there, as wonderful as the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood was, what you have in Christ is infinitely greater. John MacArthur said this, they had been deprived, this would be the original audience, they had been deprived of an earthly temple, but they were going to get a heavenly one. They had been deprived of an earthly priesthood, but they had a heavenly priest. They had been deprived of the pattern of sacrifices, but they have one final sacrifice, end quote. Beloved, that is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus, beloved, doesn't wear out. He doesn't fail. He doesn't falter. He lives forever, abides forever, saves forever. He intercedes forever, including right this second. And that's the reason why even now we, in a very real sense, go and worship beyond the veil as we do these things. Verse 25 here in Hebrews 7, the author will write, he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, Dear friend, if you come to Christ, if you trust Jesus Christ alone by faith alone, these words will apply to you. He always lives to make intercession for you. And by the way, to get a good picture of Melchizedek, if we pair the opening phrase of verse 1 with the ending phrase of verse 3, that will give us a snapshot of the very heart of this whole message. This Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. So, beloved, the priesthood of Melchizedek is universal. It is singular. It is eternal. It is singularly unique, eternally undying, and then it is, lastly, it is cardinally unsurpassed. It is a cardinal priesthood. Now, in verses 4 through 10, there are many words, but there is one simple argument. And don't let, we don't want the intricacy of the argument to prevent us from understanding the simple, straightforward clarity of the message. Namely, is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Therefore, he is greater than Aaron. He is greater than Levi. And therefore, main point, the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. In short of it, the author showing by Melchizedek being greater than Abraham, Jesus is greater than the priests that were in the temple. And by the way, he uses present language describing Levitical priests, which is one of the reasons we know that this epistle was written prior to A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple and ransacked and took over Jerusalem. And look at verse 4. The author says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoil. Patriarch. The Greek word is patriarches. We get the English word from the Greek word. It comes from patria and arche, father and beginning, or first father. A patriarch, this was a title of great respect. Uh, it was used very sparingly in the New Testament. It is used only here in Hebrews 7, talking about Abraham. It was used in Acts chapter 2, speaking of David. And then in Acts chapter 7, speaking of the 12 sons of Jacob. And so we can say both 
idiomatically and grammatically historically that Abraham is the patriarch of patriarchs. I mean, that is the idiomatic truth. That just kind of sums up that he's the big kahuna. He's the granddaddy. He's uh, El Jefe. But also grammatically and historically, because even when we look at the other two usages of patriarch, David and the sons of Jacob, Abraham is the literal father of them. So Abraham is the patriarch of patriarchs. But then look at verse 5 as the author goes on. In describing the cardinal, central, unique nature of the priesthood of Melchizedek, verse 5, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. So the Levites received under the commandment of God's law tithes from the people, but they are descended. Literally, they came out of the loins of Abraham. What the author is doing here is he's proving to the Jewish mind that Melchizedek is greater than these Levitical priests who'd emerged down through the corridors of time, even at the command and ordination and plan of God. And one point I want to bring out here is I love the fact that he says the people, that is, from their brethren. So even though the Levitical priests had the office of priesthood, the author, God through the author, reminds us that though they had that office, they were not greater. They were not a people of higher spiritual being than the hoi ploi, than the people. They're all in that together. Equality in the body of Israel at that time, and certainly for us on this side of the cross, absolute equality at the foot of the cross. And it's interesting, this even has an element that comes out from Genesis 14. There was one aspect of Genesis 14, 18 through 20 that the author of Hebrews didn't mention. And that was namely that Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abraham. And by Melchizedek bringing bread and wine to not just Abraham, but to all of Abraham's men, the 318 men that had just defeated the four kings under Ketolaomer from the east, he brought them bread and wine. So there was a practical nature to that in that they needed to be re refreshed and replenished. And there was a spiritual dynamic. Though Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and though Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, therefore Melchizedek was the greater. They shared a fellowship meal together. So even in Genesis 14, there was a commonality. There's a communal nature to it. And I think it's very likely that the author of Hebrews didn't bring that out because while it is true that we are joint heirs with Christ, that there is a distinction between the kind of communality and equality that we enjoy in the body of Christ or the people and the priests had in Israel that is not there with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what Abraham, excuse me, what the author will do as we continue to go on from there was bring out the two components of the priesthood of Melchizedek that demonstrates its total superiority, namely that he gives blessings on behalf of the Lord and he receives tithes on behalf of the Lord. And he gives on behalf of God. He gives on behalf blessings to Father Abraham. Father Abraham, I mean, Abraham stands apart in the pages of history. Christians 
understand his greatness. Jews understand his greatness. Muslims understand his greatness. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all understand and point to Father Abraham. And the point here is, in Genesis, is there anyone on earth more blessed than Abraham? In Genesis 12, God has already blessed Abraham. I mentioned before, he has already told Abraham that through him, the rest of the world would be blessed. So, if anyone is going to give the blessings, it is Abraham. He's the most blessed on the man on the planet until we meet Melchizedek. Here in Hebrews 7, look at verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, the sons of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So the blessing of Melchizedek to Abraham, that was the first time in the Bible where man blesses man. Prior to that, only God blessed man. And so the first time that we have a man blessing another man is Melchizedek because he was a priest of the Most High God. And that was an official pronouncement as God's representative, divinely ordained by God and divinely approved by God of a man that was properly authorized. That is what the author is pointing to here. He's the mediator of God to man. And then look at verse 7. But without any dispute, no question, no argument. This is accepted without question. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, gives blessings on behalf of God. Secondly, he receives tithes on behalf of God. And Remember the scene in Genesis 14. Abraham had just won this, in a sense, first world war. And the tie that he gave, that he had taken the spoils of Laomer and the retinue of the other three kings from the east, taken all their possessions, and you read in Genesis 14, 20, he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. So this plunder that Abraham had was not a small offering. It was not a small gift. And Melchizedek accepted this voluntary gift from Abraham. Now, what's interesting is seven times in verses 2 through 10, you'll see the word tithe or the word tenth. And they're cognate words. They both come from the same root. Seven times, verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. Abraham gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, verse 5. He collected a tenth from the people, verse 5. Verse 6, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth. Verse 8, mortal men received tithes. Even Levi, he received tithes and paid tithes. So what's fascinating is you would think there is surely no greater New Testament passage to preach on tithing. So maybe you're thinking, okay, now we're going to have a great application of how you need to pay your tithes. But here's the thing. Nowhere in the New Testament does God ever use tithe or tithing to encourage Christian giving. In fact, the word tithe only appears here seven times in Hebrews chapter 7, and then it also appears in the gospel account in Matthew once and twice in Luke, but in both those gospel accounts, it's used in the context of the hypocritical pseudo-religion of the Pharisees. So the only place where tithes is used in the New Testament in a positive sense is a historical reference here in Hebrews chapter 7. So there is a distinction, there is a difference between 
Old Testament, Old Covenant tithing and the greater, more powerful New Testament giving and offering. But the point back here in the text is the author wants us to understand that it is the lesser that gives the tithe, that pays the tithe, that offers the tithe to the greater. Therefore, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. And by the way, the main point of the tithing was not the quality. It does, it does say the tenth. It does say a tenth. So that was the quantity of the offering in Genesis 14. There is a word about the quality. The word choicest spoils in verse 5 literally means the top of the heap. So there was a word about the quality, but it is neither the quality nor the quantity of the tithe in Genesis 14 or Hebrews 7 that is the point. It is to whom it was given. It is who it was that received it. That's why verse 8 here in Hebrews 7, and in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. Verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, you read that, and it's like, that's one of, whoa, whoa. <laughs> a little echo there. I'll remember that next time I want to make an important point. Again, many words, one simple argument is that Abraham is the lesser, Melchizedek was the greater. And what he's saying here is that even though Abraham's son Isaac won't be born for another 15 or 14 years or so from the meeting of Melchizedek, and certainly Jacob his grandson wasn't born, and even Abraham's great-grandson, Levi, certainly wasn't born. Yet, in a very real sense, Levi was there present in the loins of Abraham when Abraham the lesser paid tithes to Melchizedek the greater. Therefore, Levi paid tithes to the greater, to Abraham. And we could say it this way. Levi's DNA was there present with Abraham. We can think of it this way, and this kind of falls under the umbrella of something called federal headship, where the acts of one represent the many. You can think if uh, in a football game, how many of the 11 have to transgress the line and go offside for the team to be penalized? Do all 11 have to go offside? So is it a majority six? No, one person that transgresses the boundary will cause the penalty of the whole team. And that's the same kind of dynamic the Apostle Paul brings out. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he says, as in Adam, all die. Or maybe even more clearly, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just as through one man sinner entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So the point there is that even though you and I weren't there present in the Garden of Eden, our DNA was there in Adam and Eve. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We are born sinners. And of course, we sin all the time until God saves us. We still sin all the time. We just sin less by the grace and mercy of God. Beloved, just expanding a little bit from the passage we read, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, there are two Adams. There's the first Adam and the second Adam. The world that we know now isn't the world as God made it. The world we see now, the world we live in now, is the world as man spoiled it. But 
A second man, a second Adam has come to the fight to rescue. And his priesthood of Jesus Christ is represented here in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And our text, verse 10, finishes when Melchizedek met him. It's interesting, the aspect of Melchizedek meeting Abraham brackets verses 1 through 10. That's how it began, that's how it ends. It's a reminder that God ordered human history 4,000 years ago, the world conflict with the rising and falling of kings to bring about this meeting so that we would understand the superiority and the final all-sufficiency of the work of Christ. Beloved, Levi, in a sense, is the priest we deserve. Melchizedek is the priest we need. And I'll close with a story. A story is told, and I think, as far as I can understand, it's a true story, but not entirely certain of the historicity of the details, but the story is told of the first convert in the country of Taiwan. There was a Western missionary that had brought the gospel to Taiwan, and God saved a Taiwanese man by virtue of the word that was preached. And the opposition, there was a crowd of uh, Taiwanese people that came and just had tremendous hostility, and they were going after certainly the missionary. They didn't like the Western missionary, but their intensity of their hatred was towards this traitor. And they were saying, come back. Come back and sacrifice to the idols that you're used to. And what happened was, uh, after a time of the man swallowing and stealing himself, the man, in essence, said to the crowd, I can't worship idols that rats can destroy. Beloved, what we have here is given to us, and we'll finish finally with this, is what the author says in verse 11. This will be a segue to next week. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? What the author is saying is all the priests of the world don't have the ability to bring about what the author describes here as perfection, as completeness, as maturity. He's driving home the absolute reality and the absolute sufficiency of the priestly work of Lord Jesus. Beloved, dear friend, life is very short. Sin is very evil. Salvation is very needful and very beautiful. And it is available only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what we will remember when we now go to the communion table. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your perfect holiness. We thank you, Lord, that you don't tolerate sin, but Lord God, thank you for providing a way of escape, a way of forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the sacrifice. Thank you for offering the sacrifice. Thank you for mediating your once-for-all sacrifice then and even now as you live forever in interceding for us even at the right hand of the Father behind the veil in heaven. As we now approach the communion table, Lord, we pray that you would bless our hearts and our minds to do this in a way that glorifies you and better prepares us to be your ministers here on earth. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.